The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. The newest installment of HBO's True Detective, Night Country, brings a new twist to the thrilling series. Repeating the feeling that that first season created has been really, really hard. And I love the feeling of a darkness contained in all things and in ourselves. The story takes place in an area I've recently become familiar with, deep in the Alaskan Arctic, where detectives are searching for answers and mysterious disappearances. These men disappeared 48 hours ago. Fact is sometimes stranger and scarier than fiction, and the Arctic is no different. The True Detective Night Country podcast will dig deeper into the story. You'll hear from the show's stars and creators, shedding light on the making of the show. Alaska felt like a natural place to explore these themes. Join host Alice Connick Glenn on the new True Detective Night Country podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't miss the HBO original True Detective Night Country, streaming exclusively on Max. Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun is released every Friday and brought to you absolutely free. But for ad-free listening, exclusive bonuses, and early access starting next week, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun, a production of Tenderfoot TV in association with Odyssey. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating. This podcast also contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. what the Gnome City Hall just sent back to us. You are not going to believe it. They gave us a report on Oregon Jones. Age, 52. Weight, 270. Additional remarks from the Gnome PD. John has made threats to the Gnome Police Department if any law enforcement approaches his tent on West Beach. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. In this report... There are 93 incidents. Disorderly conduct, vehicle theft, assault third degree, cruelty to animals, harassment, probation violation, theft second degree, property theft, harassment, theft second degree, assault third degree, assault fourth degree, assault third degree, cruelty to animals, sexual assault first degree, 
probation violation, criminal trespass, assault fourth degree, sexual assault first degree, known aliases, Oregon John. From Tinderfoot TV in Atlanta, I'm your host, Payne Lindsay, and this is Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun. Buckle up, Cooper. Safety first. So far, it seemed like everything in the universe was pointing us towards Oregon John the circumstantial evidence, all the different stories about him, and not to mention the massive list of criminal offenses. It all seemed pretty undeniable. But things were about to take a turn after receiving a text from Sue Steinecker, the longtime local here in Nome. She apparently has all this information about Flo's disappearance. We'll see exactly what she means by that. She told me she has what she feels is some very strong evidence of what may have happened to Flo that night. The pieces that I keep putting together, I put a lot of value in in these texts. A series of text message screenshots. They make a lot of sense to me. Many of these messages contained graphic details of what allegedly may have happened to Flo that night. There's enough information in there about what happened. These text messages were sent out to different people here in Nome, but they all came from the same person. She goes by... For the time being, I'm going to censor her name in the podcast, and I'm going to refer to her as Kelly. She seems to be really troubled by this. This isn't the only text. This woman, Kelly, described in great detail on multiple occasions to different people in Nome the circumstances of Florence Okpialik's murder that night. I have since verified that these texts are in fact real. As a warning, the following statements are very graphic in nature. To avoid confusion and to protect myself, all the names that Kelly mentions in her text messages are going to be censored for the time being. But don't worry, we know exactly who they are. The first text message sent from Kelly states the following. I went to the lead FBI investigator last year, and they recorded me and took my statement. My ex-boyfriend is named He was very gone in his mind during the time Flo first went missing. He said things to me, which is a long story, But anyway, him and are the ones that are highly involved with Flo's disappearance. Was telling people that they killed Flo and chopped her up and put her in the water. In his own ways, always confessed to me with his involvement. The police know all about this and it's a long story, but they need to put pressure on them because one of them will crack 
and tell what they did. There is a lot more to this story, though. These messages from a woman I'm calling Kelly paint a graphic tale of Flo's murder on the night she went missing. She implicates three individuals, two men and one woman, one of the men being her ex-boyfriend, who she claims confessed all of this to her. And before you ask, Oregon John is not one of these names. This whole new theory seemed to come out of nowhere. Lots of details and different names, but it's worth noting that it's only coming from one person, at least that we know of now. Then there was another one where she apparently sent this text to a friend who then sent it to Flo's brother, and they shared it with me. They cut her up after getting her high. They said she was screaming too much and freaking out, so they did that to her. I told they should have record or report him. Don't know if it's true. I don't know. Fucking freak me out. They said they cut her up and hid her by Solomon or something. And not all of the stories jived. So that's a little confusing. These messages were horrific, and they introduced three new players into the mix, none of whom are Oregon John. Is all this true? And it's hard to imagine why somebody would make this up unless we don't have the full picture here. One step at a time. Remember how Oregon John told the bartender Naomi about having Flo's cell phone that night? Her cell phone and shoes being found outside of a tent. A pretty big deal if it's true. Sue, through her own sleuthing, heard a very strange story about that cell phone from a source inside the search and rescue team. Upon examination of Flo's cell phone after she went missing, they discovered one last phone call she made that night, and it paints an eerie picture. Right before Flo's phone died, she said, I'm in the bushes with some people, and they're passing something around, and I don't feel safe. That's pretty telling that it's true. Yeah. That's hearsay for me, whereas these I have seen. I can read them. Just when it felt like things were starting to make a little sense, all of a sudden, they don't anymore. I've experienced this before, and it can be maddening. So what really happened that night? Is Oregon John the world's unluckiest man? Who's also a violent criminal? Maybe. And who's this other group of people that Kelly's talking about? Who is Kelly in the first place? Why is she saying this at all? And why is no one else saying it? I had to take a minute to rack my brain. In a way, it feels like I'm starting over. The whole scope of my investigation just got a lot wider. The one thing that did stand out to me can only be traced back to one person, Kelly herself. I've heard a lot of wild, wacky theories investigating cold cases. And to be honest, it just comes with the territory. And you really have to be careful. You can't be too quick to throw something out. But you have to try your best to stick to the cold, hard facts. What are the facts and what are the rumors? And those things can change and evolve throughout your investigation. The bottom line is that right now, 
There are no facts to back up Kelly's claims. I need to find the real Kelly and talk to her myself. I had to take a break from my investigation and head to Orlando for a conference. I had a speaking engagement at an event called CrimeCon. It's a bizarre thing. Every year, thousands of true crime listeners meet up in one place. Experts, creators, podcasters, former law enforcement, advocates, and even the families of victims. It's definitely a -a one-of-a-kind event, but at its core, the biggest value that it brings is to the victims' families, a safe place to connect with others and actually attempt to solve the cases. I'm Vinny Politan. Welcome to Closing Arguments. Great to have you with us tonight. We are live in Orlando, Florida. It is CrimeCon 2023. True crime really lives through these stories that take us to places that we haven't been and uncovering things we haven't seen. Joining me right now, Payne Lindsay. Great to see you, Payne. What's your obsession right now? I've been going back and forth to Alaska all summer. I'm at the point now where I'm kind of closing in on the circle of suspects that I think may be involved. I was on a panel, and other members of the Tenderfoot team were running a podcast booth in the lobby. During my presentation, one of our producers, Jamie, was given a random pamphlet from a complete stranger. And before Jamie really had a chance to look at it, the lady who gave it to her was gone in the crowd. Inside this paper brochure that was randomly given to one of our producers at CrimeCon was the missing poster for Florence Okpialik and a written summary of details on her disappearance. But here's the thing. At this point in time, nobody, and I mean pretty much nobody, besides a few of our producers, knew that I was investigating Flo's disappearance. By design, I was keeping it a secret. Nobody could have known about this. So what on earth? How? Who left that? It kind of still gives me goosebumps thinking about it. It's one of those weird moments that just feels too uncanny. What are the odds? Gnome is so incredibly far away from here. And this isn't a popular case on the internet. I've read everything there is. The woman who left the brochure wrote down her cell phone number, an Alaska area code. Right away, I called her. I didn't know you were working on a podcast for Flow. I wanted to reach out to you because all of the news coverage that I've read was very lacking in details. Her name is Rachel Ventress. She lives in Nome, and she came all the way to Orlando in hopes of spreading the word about Flo's disappearance, not knowing at all that we were actively investigating her case. I've been in communication with a detective from Homer who has decades of experience solving cold cases. Flo's mom actually met him, Flo's mom and Blair. They wanted him to come up and work for the case. We had a meeting with the city manager and with the new chief of police. A very weird meeting. She had met with the city manager and the known police chief 
Investigator Crockett, the guy I was never able to get a hold of past our brief exchange in the precinct's lobby. As a concerned citizen, she wanted an update on where the investigation stands. And according to Rachel, during this meeting, it took a weird turn. It was revealed to her that the Nome Police Department has no case file on Florence Okpialik in their possession at all. Basically, they said that they don't have a case file on Flo. The Nome Police Department has not kept a case file on Flo. That the FBI took it over. I emailed the FBI, and they just deferred me back to the Nome PD. So what's going on here? I asked a bunch of questions like, when did the FBI take over this case? They said just soon as the FBI landed in Nome. So all these years, that Flo's family has been calling for an update. Should they have been directed to the FBI? The new chief was extremely uncomfortable and just not wanting to answer questions. It was just very weird. The information wasn't up. Years ago, the FBI came in to help search for a couple of days. But that was almost four years ago now. And I hope this doesn't mean that there's literally been no investigation since then. So it's all very shady and suspicious. How does the FBI have jurisdiction if it's not on federal land? The crime wasn't on federal land and the suspects that we know of, none of them are natives. And they said, well, we asked the FBI to come up here, so we gave them the case. I was like, so can you just ask for it back? And they're like, well, like, it's just, they're just telling me bullshit. Mm. Like, they're just telling me bullshit. That isn't true. What a mess. Rachel had an idea to bring up another retired officer from Homer, Alaska, to personally investigate Flo's case. And he wants to do it. And apparently... Despite all the chaos in the Nome Police Department, there's money in their budget to hire him. In Rachel's meeting, this was one of their primary topics. So I don't know how it's all going to pan out, but that's really what we're pressing for right now is just we need pressure on the city to work with him, regardless of what kind of fallout there is. Like, you guys already fumbled this so badly, let's just quit messing around. Yeah. It's felt like for three years, there's absolutely nothing done on this case. So if all this is true, excluding random tips from the community, it could mean that literally since September of 2020, law enforcement has not been investigating this case, or at least that there's no case file to show they have, or they conduct interviews and just don't write it down? I really don't know here, but the whole thing is problematic, no matter what. We have two dogs in our home. Aria is a two-year-old puppy who definitely needs help with her portions. And Nala is a 10-year-old dog who is living a great life and we wanna keep feeding her well so she can hang in there with us for a lot longer. The farmer's dog makes it easy to keep them healthy, which can give you more quality years with them. The farmer's dog makes and delivers fresh, healthy dog food. It's recommended by vets, nutritionally balanced and made from human-grade ingredients in safe, clean kitchens. It's the best option for dogs at all life stages, 
It doesn't matter if your dog is young or old. It's always the right time to begin investing in their health, helping you live more healthy, happy, and full years together. You can get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash vanished. Let the farmer's dog know we sent you. Use our code or click podcast after you sign up for your first box. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Friends and family of Florence have been hard at work for almost four years now doing their own investigation. We've heard from Deila, Sue, Wendy, her sister Blair, Rachel, the local journalists. They've all collectively taken matters into their own hands, and frankly, because they had to. Those first 48 hours after someone goes missing are incredibly crucial. The more we can know about that time period, the closer we can get to fitting any of these pieces together. Who was around back then? What were they saying? What was it really like on West Beach? And what can we possibly learn from that all these years later? I spoke to another friend of Flo's who wishes to keep her name anonymous. From day one in this case, she has undoubtedly been a leader in the community's search efforts. No MPD didn't go out till day four. Didn't do the community-wide sweep until day six. It's when we called them, asking if they had any active strategies for Florence Akpialik. They laughed at me. The day after Flo went missing, she was searching up and down the beaches, interviewing people on her own, and documenting all of it in real time. I'm just going to make a video. And we got to go to that tent and that tent. This is what miners do to our land. They come here, they live here illegally, they tear up our lands, they leave their trash, they bring drugs, they rape our women, they steal our women. Nobody does anything about it. We want justice for Flo. She sent me a video from their very first search, making their way through the tent camps on West Beach. It's an extremely important moment captured in time, 
Somebody on this beach has something to do with Flo's disappearance. In the video, you can see dozens of tents lining the shore. Some ATVs, old beat-up trucks, small John boats, and washed-up trash and debris everywhere. It looks like a junkyard. They were looking under tarps. That wasn't there before. Digging through the sand. We need more gloves. In search of any sign of Florence. Flo, give us your energy. Yeah, Flo. Is that where the footprints are? Okay. Hey, look for female footprints, guys. When we found her footprints on the mud flats, they refused to come out. She was on West Beach at a gold miner's tent. A lot of people have talked about how he's involved with the drugs in them. The man she's referring to is Oregon John. It gets really strange. She told me that the chief of search and rescue approached Oregon John's tent on West Beach and he personally retrieved Flo's cell phone from him. The chief of search and rescue, he told us that he went and talked to John himself and he got Flo's phone from him. He verbally told a whole room of people at the search and rescue meetings. He told us that he went and talked to John himself. John was very kind, very calm, and he took Flo's phone from him. So if Flo went somewhere else, besides Oregon John's tent that night, she did so without bringing her shoes, shirt, jacket, and her cell phone. Flo's friend also talked to the occupants of several other tents that were adjacent to Oregon John's. Other neighboring gold miners, they heard her screaming. They talked about how he took her on a foiler up the beach, never came back with her. He came back really hungry and irate, 10 the next morning, very angry, demanding food. A story she was told by one of the miners camping next to Oregon John's tent was the same story I'd heard before from Wendy and Blair. Flow on the back of the four-wheeler and went up West Beach. And he didn't come back till morning, but he came back without her. Remember the story that Sue had heard about Flo's last known communication on her cell phone that night? Right before Flo's phone died, she said, I'm in the bushes with some people and they're passing something around and I don't feel safe. She tracked down the friend who Flo actually talked to that night, and she messaged her directly about her last exchange with her. This is the last known communication from her cell phone. I was talking to her the night she was missing. I asked her if they were on drugs. She said they were in the bushes throwing the drug out to her. She said there were three men. I don't remember the names. A few had nicknames as names. Nicknames? The last phone call Florence made on the night she went missing paints an eerily similar picture to that theory we heard about from Kelly, the lady who sent out those text messages. Except there was one major difference. In the messages from Kelly that I saw, that Sue showed me, she described two men and one woman. But in Flo's last known phone call to her friend, 
Florence herself says she is with three men. Some of them have nicknames. She said there were three men. I don't remember the names. A few had nicknames as names. A crucial and unique detail that's different than what Kelly was saying in all of her text messages. Speaking of Kelly, Flo's friend was also aware of this theory. She'd seen those messages too. But she also had a very odd personal exchange with Kelly during the first couple days of the search. Kelly made a comment that stuck with her forever and it's reshaped her entire perspective on Kelly's theory. I think was involved in some way. She's referring to Kelly. As soon as Flo went missing and as soon as they started holding search and rescue meetings, a few days after the meeting started, she showed up and she was like, I think you need to look a lot closer than you're looking. And I think you need to research areas that you've already searched. I think she's a lot closer than you guys think. Why would Kelly think that? Does she know that? I have a screenshot of her basically admitting that Flo was dead in her presence a day after. (sighs) It does tie back to John. I've been sent the screenshots of her exchange with Kelly, and the story goes a lot different. She asked Kelly, was John a part of it, or was it just these other two guys? Kelly responded, no, it was John and my ex-boyfriend that did something to her, I believe. But I believe in my heart that John and my ex-boyfriend are the ones that did something. Hmm, why are there two different versions of this story? Where was Oregon John's name in all the other messages I've seen? She also asked Kelly, quote, how did they move her? Kelly responded and said, That I don't know, because they made me leave. It was John and my ex-boyfriend that hurt her, I believe. These are pretty big statements. Flo's friend then said, I just want to clarify what I'm hearing. You weren't a part of any of it, but you happened to be near her presumed dead body, and they made you leave before they moved her? Kelly said, yes. They wouldn't even let me inside. And I said, I just want to clarify what I'm hearing. You weren't a part of any of it, but you happened to be near her, presumed dead, and they made you leave before they moved her. And she said, yes, they wouldn't even let me inside. She's referring to the tent. So I think Flo is in the tent. These are pretty big statements. At one point, when we were searching for Flo, we saw high school girls walking to his tent. We were turning young girls away from his tent. I think they had a drug operation. I also have video footage, John and his neighbors that were supposedly involved, moving their entire camp. If Kelly is telling the truth, then she clearly has a conscience. She's texted all kinds of people about this story. But reading somebody's messages is entirely different than talking to the real person. I need to talk to the real Kelly. I think she was their bug on the inside, feeling guilty and doesn't want to be convicted. And that's why she's trying to stay anonymous. I think she's a huge accomplice because they're all part of the drug affiliation here in Nome. 
Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. This theory put forth from Kelly in her text messages is beginning to take on a different form. And if it's true that these individuals were seen moving Oregon John's tent camp right after Flo disappeared, then something happened in John's tent or something happened after she left his tent and John stayed behind and somehow falls out of the narrative forever. Mm, But that doesn't make sense. What about the multiple witnesses who saw Oregon John drive off with Flo on the back of his ATV, only to return the next morning without her. Maybe Oregon John took Flo to meet with these other people, but either way, according to the eyewitnesses, he didn't come back until the morning time, and he came back without Flo, irritable and hungry. So if John just dropped her off somewhere, where did he go for the rest of the entire night? Because he wasn't at the bars. And why didn't he say this to Flo's family, Wendy and her sister Blair? when they confronted him on West Beach a few days later, when he gave them Flo's belongings. If she's missing and you have her things, and her sister's asking, where is she? Isn't that when you would say, hey, I dropped her off with these people, if that were true? Or is that not the case? You could sit here for hours and make up a million different possibilities, but I think we need to zoom out further. Whether the story Kelly is telling everybody in her text messages is entirely true, partially true, or completely false, one thing remains either way, and that's Oregon John. If Kelly is telling the truth, then she clearly has a conscience. I need to talk to the real Kelly. So I did. I got a hold of her phone number, and we exchanged a few texts. She was being nice and cordial, and we set a time for a phone call. Hello. Hey, right? Who is this? This is Payne. I texted you uh, yesterday. Oh. I'm working with Flo's family about her disappearance. Oh, yeah, okay. You remember my text that I sent you? I think so. If you had just a couple minutes real quick just to chat about what you know. Would that be okay? What? Cannot be reached at the moment. Please leave a message after that. <sighs> Pretty sure she blocked me. What is actually happening here? A few days later, 
I texted her again. And again, she was very nice and cordial. I asked to talk about her text messages that alleged Flo was murdered that night. And again, we arranged the time to talk. Hello? Hey, it's Payne. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Payne Lindsay, I was just texting you. Oh. Yeah, about Florence? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a few minutes just to talk real quick? I guess. I already talked to you. Yeah, but you didn't... You hung up on me last time or we lost service or something. Stop. We, we never talked about it. Yes, we did. I remember we did. Um, are you sure it was me? It might have been somebody else. No, it was you. I remember the news. We had texted about it, but we never talked on the phone about anything. I. Hmm? What is going on right now? Does she actually not remember? I've texted her before each call, and she's texted me back every time, clearly understanding what we're talking about. I think. I feel like I'm losing my mind. Hello? Do you have any comments about the text you sent about Florence Akpialik being chopped up? Do you have any comments on that? I'll take that as a no comment. I really don't know what to make of this. But as a source of potentially crucial bombshell information, this is starting to feel a little shaky and unreliable. In a way, it seems like I've made a complete 180 back around here. Kelly, the one who's saying this stuff, has altered key points in her story over and over again. Based on that, in my own exchanges with Kelly, I feel like it's only natural to start to question things. Something is just off here. And I'm not even referring to the fact that she didn't want to talk to me about it. That's her choice, that's fine. But it was almost like she genuinely didn't know who I was when I called her, even though we were just texting about it, and she knew that. I just don't know here, but there's a lot about it I don't like. I need to stick to the facts. I need to stick to what we know for sure. And through that, maybe all these other things will start to make sense. If we're sticking with what we know to be 100% true, in this case right now, then that only really leaves one person, Oregon John. It was Oregon John who was the last person to see her that we know about. It was Oregon John who had possession of Flo's things, her shirt, her shoes, her jacket, and her cell phone. He also offered no explanation as to why he had these things. He has since fled town and to my knowledge has never returned. And he has a rap sheet in Nome with 93 different incidents on it, including sexual assault, cruelty to animals, some really bad stuff. And no matter the level of involvement Oregon John may or may not have here, he is, without a doubt, the most central character on the night of Flo's disappearance. 
and he could very well hold the keys to solving this. So we must talk to Oregon John. But I wasn't feeling very confident about that. Everyone I've ever talked to has said he fled Nome years ago and moved somewhere in Asia. Wendy mentioned the Philippines. If that's the case, we're in bad shape here. In the police report on Oregon John that I received from the city, I was able to learn his full name. And so my internet searching began. And it didn't take long before I found a Facebook profile that seemed to exactly match his physical description. I went deep back in the photos. There's no. This has to be the guy. Good morning, Facebook. Oregon John, a.k.a. Lechon John. Just another beautiful night in Kodiak, Alaska. <laughs> He's not in the Philippines. He's right here in Alaska. If you want a full breakdown of episode four, go right now to my weekly show called Talking to Death, where I break down this entire episode in great detail. Things in this case are shaking up, and this is a real-time investigation. And if you'd like to follow it more closely, go listen to the latest episode of Talking to Death. In the intro portion of the episode, I break down episode four with the producers of this show in great detail and a lot of backstory. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun is a production of Tenderfoot TV in association with Odyssey. Your host is Payne Lindsay. The show is written by Payne Lindsay with additional assistance from Mike Rooney. Executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Lead producer is Mike Rooney, along with producers Dylan Harrington and Cooper Skinner. Editing by Mike Rooney and Cooper Skinner, with additional editing by Dylan Harrington. Supervising producer is Tracy Kaplan. Additional production by Victoria McKenzie, Alice Kanik Glenn, and Eric Quintana. Artwork by Rob Sheridan. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Mix and mastered by Cooper Skinner. Thank you to Oren Rosenbaum and the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and the Nord Group. Special thanks to all of the families and community members that spoke to the team. Additional information and resources can be found in our show notes. For more podcasts like Up and Vanished, search Tenderfoot TV on your favorite podcast app or visit us at tenderfoot.tv. Thanks for listening. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. 
Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today. Hey, Tenderfoot listeners, it's Payne. I want to tell you about a new true crime podcast from Tenderfoot TV called The Raven. The Raven reinvestigates a double homicide that took place after the biggest night in sports, the Super Bowl. And the man caught up at the center of the crime, Baltimore Ravens star linebacker Ray Lewis. Hours after the game, in Atlanta's affluent Buckhead neighborhood, Lewis and a group of friends got into an altercation. Within seconds, two men were stabbed to death in the street. Lewis and two friends were charged with murder. A media frenzy ensued. But in the end, all three defendants walked free. Ray Lewis would go on to become a Super Bowl champion and is widely regarded as the greatest middle linebacker in NFL history. For 20 years, he's professed his innocence, but the victim's families believe there is more to the story. Join host Tim Livingston, who brought you the award-winning podcast, Whistleblower, as he investigates the tragic double homicide and unveils new evidence that paints a vivid picture of what happened that tragic night in Atlanta. Check out this trailer of The Raven. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in O.J. Simpson. And look what happened in Ray Lewis. A couple of weeks ago, the family of the incident in 2000, and I'm paraphrasing, but it goes something like this. While Ray Lewis is being celebrated by millions, two men tragically and brutally died in Atlanta. Ray Lewis knows more than Ray Lewis ever shared. What would you like to say to the families? It's simple, you know. God has never made a mistake. It happened just hours after the Super Bowl, and it happened in a flash. Oakley says he was leaving the club with Lewis when the two victims started arguing with their group. Then it was mayhem. Two men were stabbed to death in Atlanta. The primary suspect? Baltimore Ravens star linebacker, Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis absolutely took control and told everybody to shut the fuck up. I am not going to let you motherfuckers ruin my career. Charged with murder, Ray Lewis, Reginald Oakley, and Joseph Sweeting would stand trial and walk free. We had one job, one job, get Ray to training camp. But for the victim's families, justice was never served. So you think on this day, Ray Lewis knows what happened that night? Oh, yeah. I hope it it haunts them for the rest of their life until they burn in hell. Questions and theories still surround that night in Atlanta. And the murders have remained a cloud over Lewis's otherwise remarkable career. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. When he murdered my nephew, they made Ray Lewis famous. Did one of sports' biggest stars get away with a heinous crime? Or was the whole thing a tragic misunderstanding. If our system took the time to really investigate what happened 13 years ago, maybe they would have got to the bottom line truth. Over 20 years later, it's time to tell the story of what happened that tragic night in Atlanta. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven.
football, murder, and the man in the middle. From Tenderfoot TV, The Raven is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.